Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Jumping into our text today, we're, we're almost wrapping up our Epiphany series. And Epiphany is just a fancy way of saying the manifestation of Jesus Jesus making himself known to the world and to uh, believers and to non-believers and just showing people who the true hope is. Showing people who um, can finally provide for them the way, the truth, and the life. Finally provide for them the joy that they've been after. And so we've been walking through what that looks like from a spiritual formation standpoint. And so for that, and what I mean by that is kind of how we live our lives in such a way that Jesus is our greatest treasure and nothing else matters. And when Jesus is our greatest treasure, that then informs us on how we actually live our lives in a way that does matter. And so we looked at um, how Jesus makes himself known through the Bible and how we read it and how we meditate on it and how we study it so that we are essentially keeping the commands that God has given to us to be able to know Jesus. And then we moved into what does it look like to uh, communicate to Jesus? If the Bible is his primary way of communicating to us, how do we then communicate with him? And that is through the art of prayer. And prayer, again, a command by God from the scriptures to communicate with him, to talk to him, to dialogue with him and in a way in which we are relinquishing our will and accepting God's will for our lives and then orienting ourselves around that. And so even though prayer oftentimes feels like I'm making a bunch of requests to God, asking Him kind of like a genie in a lamp to do something that I want Him to do, ultimately, He might say yes. He also might say no. He might say later. But it's ultimately going to be what He deems necessary and we are to relinquish our wills to that so that we are aligning with what He wants and then understanding that what He actually wants for us is the best thing for us. So sometimes if He were to just give us what we're asking for and it's not good for us, He would cease to be God because that's not what God does. What God does is provide for us the best thing that we need in order to um, live a life that is full of joy and full of His Glory, And so we looked at prayer, and then from prayer we moved into what does a lifestyle of evangelism look like? So if I'm communing with God in His Word, and I'm communing with God in prayer, that's going to overflow into a life that is um, flourishing and overflowing towards others. And so how do I then engage those around me who don't know Jesus? And typically, evangelistic messages are all about the proclamation of the gospel. And so what I wanted to do that week, because that's usually what we preach, and yes and amen, that is our primary focus, is to preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, as believers, I showed from the scriptures how we actually are to pair with that our conduct, our behavior. Like, how do we actually live out and practice what we preach that allows non-believers to see the good works that we do and in turn begin to glorify God as we are also proclaiming the excellencies of Him. And so it then brings them from darkness into His marvelous light. And so that's what we looked at last week. And, and then now this week, um, again, is kind of driving that point a little bit further. But it's just getting finally to the place where as you see more of the Scripture and as you see more of prayer and as you see more of, of the need for evangelizing and getting the gospel out to others, it actually finally frees you completely of, of believing the lie that life is about you. 
It actually finally moves you to the place of, of, of living out the command to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and to love others as He has loved us. And so it's being other-minded in anything and everything that we do and that that is the thing that actually provides for you the greatest joy in life, that actually frees you. Because you know, I, th I think you've heard me say this before, like when life is about you is when you are the most frustrated. It's when you are the most stressed out. It's when you are the most weary is when life is about you because then everything that you're processing or everything that you're viewing around life, if it's about you, then you're beginning to analyze it in such a way that is this thing satisfying me? Is this thing uh, good for me? Is this thing ultimately um, doing for me what I expect it to do? And we're actually begin worshiping those things as if they're trying to provide us some sort of satisfaction. And when that happens, we just get this, this growing sense of frustration, this growing sense of, of lack of joy and rather just bitterness and resentment. And so for me today, what I, my aim is, is to show you how abiding in Jesus and what it has to do with really you pursuing this lifestyle of being other-oriented. And what that actually then produces is what we call gospel-centered community. Gospel-centered community. Because without it being gospel-centered, you will never truly reach any sort of biblical community. And the only way to get to any sort of biblical community is when we're able to see that everyone is operating in an other-oriented mind frame, other-oriented kind of lifestyle. Because then you're meeting the needs of others. Then you are considering the interest of others. Then you are doing the 59 one another's in the New Testament that are, again, not about you, but about others. And again, that both encapsulates non-believers and believers. It just frees you to just empty yourself because you actually find yourself to be full. So what I want to do is look at John 14. And John 15. We're going to actually look at John 14, 1 through 18. And I'm going to kind of go through three big points in that because that is the foundation for leading into the abiding scriptures of John 15, 1 through 17. And the reason why this is very kind of, um, I, I was actually diving into a lot of this yesterday due to a very busy week. And so I was kind of late in the sermon prep. But this is also a fresh on my mind because we did a three month series. In, was that like a police alarm going off over here? Um, <laughs> but anyways, we, uh, we did a three-month series in John 15, 1 through 17, back in the summer of 2017. And today has been my favorite series um, that, that we've done here at the church. And so again, it's very fresh, but I'm basically taking those three months and putting them into the next 30 minutes. And so uh, let's just see what happens. So John chapter 14 uh, we're going to look at uh, verse 1 through 4 and then just kind of pick it up from there. And again, like I said, this is the foundation for abiding in Jesus that leads to you pursuing community. And in John 14, what you're going to see for the foundation is if you were to picture a, a three-legged stool as, as kind of the foundation to be able to sit upon it, rest upon it, um, we're going to be breaking down what those three legs are in John 14 which is then leading to the stool of John 15. The stool to sit on. John 14. I know you. I know what you're all thinking. All right. The first leg that we're going to look at is Jesus Christ himself. So beginning in verse 1. 
And kind of the context surrounding our passage specifically is uh, when Thomas is doubting Jesus and starts to kind of ask some questions. And so, starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So Jesus is talking about a place that we're going to go to and dwell or reside and live in. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know that the way to where I am going, or and you know the way to where I am going. So Jesus here is saying, I'm going to take you to a place where you're going to dwell, where you're going to live, where you're going to essentially abide. And so here, you know, when I think of a place, or when I think of a, a place with many rooms, like I usually think of some type of resort. And so I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, so the first time I ever read this text, like I'm thinking of Opryland Hotel. And so if you've ever been to Opryland Hotel, it is an oasis of a hotel. I mean, it's got multiple huge gardens and conservatories within. I mean, it's got literally a little Italy inside the hotel with waterfalls and villas and Tuscany types of little villages and restaurants. And it's just a gorgeous hotel. That's kind of what I'm thinking in my mind when I'm hearing of Jesus preparing a place for us, for us to go and dwell in or reside in. And now the interesting thing that he uses a term here when he's talking about rooms is abodes. And abodes is just another fancy way of talking about a destination in which you abide. Now what he also mentions in this destination in which you abide or abode is also referring to him as the place in which you are going to come. And so this many rooms that he is preparing for us is essentially us coming to dwell within Christ, as Christ is also dwelling within us. So this begins to show us that the place that we are ultimately going is not the mansion that you're going to get in heaven, which maybe you will get one, maybe not, I don't know. It's up for interpretation. But what we ultimately know is that where we are going to abode in, abide in, the room in which we are going to dwell and reside in, is Christ Himself. And there is security in that, there is joy in that, because we know Jesus and who he is. And so the first kind of leg that we're seeing here is the fact that it is Jesus that it's talking about. And so we see here in verses 5 through 6, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? How do we get to this place? How do we get to you? And what Thomas is asking in that question is, Jesus, if you are preparing a place for us to reside, and in that place is where you will be, and not only that, but the place is us in you, how do we then get there? And this is also kind of a question that is being echoed throughout the Scriptures. We see David echo this in Psalm 27, verse 4, where he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. And so this, again, is just the heartbeat of David, is that wherever you are, Lord, is where I want to be. And so Jesus is coming in and fulfilling that in him saying that I am that place in which David is ultimately gazing upon and longing to be in and longing for is this abode where he will ultimately abide. And so to dwell with the Lord is what David is after. It's what Thomas is after. And for any and everyone who has tasted of the grace of God, we so desperately long for. It's just to be with Jesus. And so how do we get there? John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. No one can dwell, reside, and abide in the Lord with the Father except through abiding in Jesus. So that's the first leg. The second leg is then salvation. So if the first leg is Jesus, the way God brings us into this abiding relationship is through salvation, which is belief in Jesus. Look at verses 7 through 11. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So here we see the relationship between believing that leads to knowing. And by knowing, I mean more of an intimate understanding of knowing. See, the, God, the knowledge of God um, is more than mere mental grasp. It's more than just mere mental grasp because it involves a personal relationship with wholehearted commitment. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That means whoever has believed Jesus believes in the Father. Whoever is in relationship with Jesus is in relationship with the Father because in verse 10, Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. They are inseparable. To be in Jesus, to be in Christ, is to be in God. It is to be in the Father. So those are a mutual relationship in which we benefit mutual relationship with as well. Wherever Jesus goes, the Father goes. Jesus himself saying, I am the visible representation of the invisible God. To know the Father, as we have said, is to know Jesus. To know Jesus is to know his word. And so to be in the Father is to be in Jesus. To have salvation is then believing in Christ, who he says he is, what he says he's done, we are to believe in that, trust in that, place faith in that, orient our lives around that to where we are saying it's not according to our works, it's not according to our deeds, it's not according to even our facts that we know. It's according to belief in Christ, Jesus himself, nothing else. That when he says we are sinners, we believe we are sinners. And that when he says he's gone to the cross in order to pay for our sins, we believe that he has gone to the cross to pay for our sins. And that when he says he's risen three days later to defeat death and sin and evil, we believe that he has risen three days later to defeat sin, death, and evil. And that he then guarantees, because he was the first fruits of the resurrection, we will also be fruits of the resurrection to where we will one day be resurrected to a new body that does not no longer break down, that does is not uh, ignorant in any way, no longer sins, no longer experience pain or any of those things, we will have a new body that is glorified just like Christ's body that is right now in glory. So we believe that. We trust that. And that then is salvation. God granting to us this grace to receive. So that's the second leg. We must believe or see that Jesus is the Son of God and that he did the work of the gospel, the good news. Now the third leg is then the response. So we got Jesus, we got salvation, and then we got the response to salvation. Look at verses 12 through 17. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this, is, um, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask, ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. So now there's this call to action. It first begins with Jesus Christ as the way to dwelling with God, then moves into asking the question, how do we get there? And Jesus answers by believing, seeing, and knowing me through salvation. And now he says, and whoever believes in me will have some work to do. We'll have a response to what they are believing in. We'll have a response to how they live their lives in such a way that reveals or proves that they are disciples of Jesus, that they do love and trust in Christ. And so we see this in verse 18 um, when it's kind of an interesting way in how he connects the third leg to the other two. Verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, that's an interesting statement thrown in here by Jesus, and it's an important one because here's what he means. Jesus says in verses 16 through 17 that he's going to send the helper, the spirit of truth, to lead us. And what he means by that is actually what we see in Romans 8, 14 through 16, when he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God, Christians, believers, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So follow me here for a minute. Because Jesus came down, first leg, and because we have seen Him and believed in Him for salvation, second leg, we are adopted into his family that produces a spirit of response. A spirit of response. By whom, Jesus, we cry out, Abba, Father. And also produces a spirit that bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That we are in the family. And so two things are happening here because of our adoption. Two things are happening in the way in which the Spirit bears with our, witness, or with our Spirit that we are children of His. The first is that there is a delight in the Lord. When He says, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, that is a delight springing forth a new identity that we are children of the High King. We are children of, of God Himself. That we are no longer sinners and orphans, but we have been adopted by Him and we love our new Father. We delight in our Father. We run to our Father regardless of circumstance that we're dealing with in the moment. We run to Him when things are going great to praise Him. We run to Him when things are not going great to rejoice in Him, knowing that in our weakness He is providing strength. That he is doing anything and everything to care for and make provision for his children. There is a delight that we have in our new father. So that's the first thing that happens. By giving us a new heart, it also then leads to a second thing that happens, which is desire to be obedient to God's word. Our new father, whatever he commands, we have a desire to be obedient to it, even though it's going to be imperfectly executed. 
But there's this new desire there. There's this new spirit within us that's bearing witness with our spirit that we want to do what our Father commands. That we want to know what our Father commands. Because we know that what He is commanding is like honey to our lips, as David says. That we dwell on it day and night. That we want it day and night. That we, that we know it's going to lead to the greatest joy and satisfaction in our life. And so we want more of that. So there, there's a desire to be obedient to our Heavenly Father. And I would question, this is again where it kind of comes back into Jesus being the first leg and belief being the second leg, salvation. If we do not have a spirit that is bearing witness to our spirit that we are children, if we do not have a desire in us to be obedient to God's word, although we know it's going to be imperfectly executed, there's a desire there. There's an affection there. There's a conviction there that we want to be more like His Son, Jesus. That we want to be more like Christ. There's a desire there, and there is a delight in the Father. He is a good Father with good commands, and we want more of it. That bears witness that we are children of His. That reveals that we are children of His. And so I would dare say, if the desire is not there and the delight is not there, then maybe we're missing a couple of the legs. Maybe we're just focusing on the third leg in the sense that we are trying to do the work of Christianity, we're trying to do the work of being a Christian, we're trying to do the work of belonging to a church, but it's actually just a frustrating process. And I think you've heard me say this before, if church is your hobby, get a better hobby. Because it's frustrating if it's your hobby. Because the church misses things all the time. Messes up in things all the time. Does not serve the community as fast as we would love for it to serve the community. Does not worship perfectly. Does not proclaim the truth perfectly. Does not encourage and stir up your souls like it should at all times. But the only reason why that happens is oftentimes because churches are full of people focusing on the work of it rather than who it is ultimately supposed to be abiding in. Jesus. And believing Him, trusting Him, having the affection there and desire for Him alone. So we need those three legs to come into the foundation, which then is going to lead you into John 15, which is where I want you to turn over. So one chapter over to John 15. Because I want you to see this kind of play itself out. When we kind of have those, those foundations in our mind, we need Jesus we need belief in Jesus, and we need Jesus and belief in Jesus that both lead to the conviction that we want more of His commands and we want more of His um, just knowing Him and intimacy and communion with Him. There's that delight there. When we have those things, abiding takes place. Abiding takes place. And once, uh, once abiding takes place, and what I mean by abiding... I'm not just talking about like how we compartmentalize relationship with God. I'm talking about abiding in the sense of there's two types of knowing throughout Scripture. There's the type of knowing that's like you knowing your friends on Facebook where we just have facts about them and we see updates from them every once in a while. And so we kind of have some knowledgeable facts that if we were to see them you know, on the side of the road, we'd, hey, I noticed you got a new job. Hey, notice that you had a baby. That's awesome. Great. Glad we're in relationship together. 
That's a type of knowing. And then there's a type, and I would honestly just kind of refer to that as long-distance relationship. Then there's a type of relationship that produces children. They're different. You cannot produce children in a long-distance relationship. Right? There's a mingling of souls that takes place there. All right? There's a, there, there, there is a union of souls that takes place there. I'm referring to that type of abiding with the Lord where it's not long-distance relationship to just kind of get facts about Him. It is coming back to the fact that we have Jesus, we have belief in Him, trust in Him, that leads to a lifestyle as we went back to the first week of, of um, Epiphany where we create a rule of life that literally just revolves around Jesus Christ. So he defines our life, not our, us defining our life, and then we kind of add him into the mix whenever it's convenient for us. Lord, how often do you want me to read your scripture? The Spirit is then going to bear witness with my spirit how often you want me to read your scripture. How often do you want me to pray? The Spirit is going to not only drive that and help us see how often we should be praying, but also is going to be praying on our behalf, as you see in Romans 8, because we don't know what to pray for as we ought. So he kind of shot box our prayers and then prays for us what we ultimately need. And then that's going to ultimately free us when we're just, when you're in Jesus and you're abiding in him and you're in that union, that mingling of souls with Christ. The best way to describe it, you're full. I mean, you're just full. If it's a feast, you're full. But the great thing about it is not only are you full, but you still have a hunger and a thirst for more. So you're full but can't get enough. And so you're just at the table constantly, wanting more of Jesus, wanting more of His commands, delighting in Him more, just having your satisfaction filling up and overflowing to the fruit that then comes later. The fruit is actually not the work. It's the fruit that comes later that's not actually for you. Like when a tree bears fruit, it's not for itself. A tree does not eat its own fruit. The fruit is for others. And it begins to have this other-oriented mindset. So I'm not going to break down 1 through 17 and 15 like I did John 14, so just calm down a little bit. I'm going to read through it so that you can see how it builds off of this foundation to ultimately leading to you being free of yourself and then other-oriented focused. Let's start in verse 1. And I might stop here and there. We'll see. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So these first two verses are just talking about the fact that Jesus is the vine, the true vine. You will not be nourished or taken care of or provided for life if you're not attached to Jesus. That's what he's saying. Not only that, but your growth that you have with Jesus is also not dependent upon you, but dependent upon the vine dresser. This is why I love this relationship between Jesus and the Father is that as we are connected to Jesus, the Father is doing the work of salvation for us as the vine dresser. And not only is He doing the work of salvation for us, but He is also doing the work of sanctification for us. So once we are saved, and as we are now with the, the, the works of the foundation, 
Jesus' belief and us keeping His commandments and interacting with Him in prayer through abiding in Him, the vine dresser is making us clean. And He's doing the work of pruning, as we'll see here in a moment. And He's doing the work of, of cutting off branches who don't truly believe and know Him. And He's just helping us grow in Him to be stronger and healthier in Jesus than we would be apart from Christ. So as we are connected to Jesus, the Father is working. He's not just sitting on a throne, which yes, He is. He is working in your life to grow you as the vine dresser. For as we saw over the last couple of weeks, you've heard me mention this. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. You're already connected. You're already clean. You're already a part of Jesus, but there's still work that is being done in you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So right there, he's really just summing up for you all of chapter 14. You've got to be connected to me. You've got to be dwelling with me. And this has to be a lifestyle. This has to be a moment by moment, second by second, just dependency in the union that we have with Jesus. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now this is kind of a, an all-encompassing verse that is referring to not believers who are truly secured to the vine, who uh, choose then not to uh, believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, and then He breaks you off and throws you away. This is a separation of those who truly are connected versus those who have been saying that they are connected but truly aren't connected. And so it's getting rid of those who truly aren't connected versus keeping those who are connected. Because again, it's the work of the Lord that He is doing, not our work. If you didn't do anything to earn your salvation, you can't do anything to lose your salvation. This is the work of the vine dresser for us. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So again, this relationship that we have with Jesus, this abiding union with Him, then leads us to this conversation that we have where we're able to, because we see Jesus and we know His heart and we know His plans and we know His design and what He wants for life to flourish around us, to cultivate the earth, to see it flourish, we're then going to know how to pray and what to pray and what to ask. And in that aligned will with Jesus, he's going to say yes. He's going to say yes to the request that we are then asking. And again, as I mentioned back in um, the week when we talked about prayer, is it's simple. Pray what the scriptures pray. Pray what the prophets have been praying. Pray what God has been promising. Pray like Jesus in the way in which he oriented his prayers. Look at what they prayed for and how God answered their prayers. And let's contextualize those to our current day and age in which we can then pray in such a way that God will say yes to those things. I'm not saying you can't pray for a new car. I'm just saying if God wills for you to have a new car, it'll happen. He'll give it to you. He will take care of you like He takes care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the fields. He will provide for you. But again, pray prayers that aren't about you. Pray prayers that are other-oriented. 
By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Here's where the, the foundation is now leading to fruit that is proving for those who are disciples. So again, there is no passive Christian, and there is no lazy Christian, and there is no sidelined Christian. Christians work. Christians are active. Christians are engaging those around them with the gospel and also a conduct or a behavior that is proving that they are of the gospel. Bear fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. For if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Again, His commandments that He provides for us are not heavy burdensome. Like I've just heard people say that in the past where it's like, you know what? Like, I love the idea of Jesus. I love the idea of this eternal heaven. But I just think Christianity is boring and i think christianity is just dull and and it's just there's just no fun to it um and 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 all i have to say to that is you haven't met true christians like honestly you haven't met true christians and you haven't met a church that's abiding in christ because if it's a church that's abiding in christ and it's christians who are abiding in jesus their joy is full and it's an unwavering joy when regardless of the circumstance that are going on in their lives, whether they're experiencing high top mountain experiences or valley low experiences, they're able to say, I can rejoice always because I know my hope is found in Christ, not in my circumstances. And that surprises the lost world around us. It surprises them. How can you say that when you've experienced loss? Because I haven't experienced loss. I have everything I need in Jesus. I may have lost things on this side of eternity, but I have everything that I need in Jesus. So that, just like the Apostle Paul is able to say and at times, whether I'm in uh, want or I'm not lacking anything, I'm able to rejoice. I'm able to be content. Because I have Jesus. I've got the first leg and it's working well for me. Verse 12. This is my commandment then. And start to see this shift. When your joy is full because of the abiding relationship with Jesus, this is where it shifts. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, so that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. You see, everything about verses 12 through 17 is the overflow of the abiding relationship that you have with Jesus. Because by verse 11, 
you don't need anything. You don't need anything. By verse 11, you're so full in your joy that at that moment, your prayers even start to shift towards how can I lay my life down so that I can provide for my friends and even in other verses, my enemies. How can I become other-minded so much so that again, I'm able to decrease so that Jesus is then increasing in my life as the great John the Baptist would say. And at this point, the fruit that is being born, which again, if you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 23, um, that fruit isn't just geared towards you becoming a better person. That fruit is being geared towards how others experience your conduct and your behavior. And begin to see that, you know what? The way in which you conduct yourselves doesn't seem human. It doesn't seem like how I experience other people when they disagree with me, when they cut me off in traffic, when I you know, do something that they don't like. It, whatever it is, they seem to respond to me in a way in which I've hurt them. But you seem to respond in a way in which it's patient, in which it's kind, in which it's joyful and generous and and each of the fruit of the Spirit. Like it, it, it's in such a way that you seem okay regardless. And it's because you're able to then respond, in my relationship with Christ, Christ gives me everything that I need, and therefore I'm able to give everything that I have. And I'm able to then focus outward so that now my prayers, knowing that I'm full, knowing that I have everything that I need, my prayers can be for those around me who have needs and who have wants and who have desires and affections. And maybe their desires and affections are off. And so I'm going to pray for their desire and affections to shift towards Jesus rather than this world. That they would no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but they'd be transformed by the renewing of their minds. And that they would begin to see Jesus and have belief in Him, which leads to them being able to keep His commandments and know His commandments and be able to delight in the Father as He is their adopted Father. And as they are able to have these desires to obey, even though it's going to be imperfectly executed because we understand grace and we understand mercy. And out of those things, as we are abiding in Jesus, it's able to then free us to pursue. To pursue. Because again, a person who's full, or rather, a person who's empty, is only pursuing their own gain. I'll get to that once I have my ducks in a row. I'll get to that once I'm taken care of. And it's just this kind of weird countercultural mindset. Because again, and, and to a way I see what they're saying. I've seen pastors use the analogy of like, you know, when, you're, when the plane's going down and the masks drop, like you've got to secure your mask before you secure the person next to you. I understand what they're saying to an extent. But when Jesus is the one who secures us, we don't have to worry about that. We're secure in Christ. We then focus on securing that 
for everyone that's around us. Everyone that's around us. We become focused on considering the interest of others rather than the interest of ourselves. And I'm telling you right now, that is the most freeing place for you to live. Just park the car there. It's the most freeing place for you to live. And so I want us to experience that freedom. And so if you want to put it in an equation, just focus on John 14 as your foundation. We need Jesus. I get my time's up. We need Jesus. We need... What was the second, second point? That got me. We need belief. We need salvation. We need salvation that leads to a response. We are after His Word. We're after Him in prayer and communication. And it leads us to knowing and understanding that we are adopted by Him. So there's that delight in our Father and there's that desire to be obedient to what our Father commands us that then produces the fruit which is joy being full, conduct being changed and transformed. You are now like Christ and you become salt to the world. You become a gift to others. You become a grace to others that when they interact with you, they have been graced by Jesus Christ Himself. Because as He says, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. I'm also in you as you are in me. Where you go, Jesus goes. And so when that fruit is coming out, they are tasting of who Jesus is. And they'll be surprised by it. And that's both for believers and non-believers. And so for us as a church, that is us pursuing one another for the sake of stirring up the body of Christ to love and good deeds, just stirring one another up, encouraging one another. Do as I said, the 59 one another's in Scripture. You want to know what they all are? Just find some type of translation where you can search and just say one another and just start making a list in Scripture. I've got the list, but I want you to do the work of it. I'm not going to email it to you. You do the work of finding out what all the one another's are in Scripture. And then also, as we said last week, let that flow outside our walls into the community around us who do not have Jesus, who do not believe in Him, and do not have their adopted Father yet. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at